welcome to the Swap Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. Hi, I'm Allie. And I am Boomer. And we are three friends who recommend films to each other. I was just describing this setup as an elaborate book club, but for movies. Um, <laughs> I think that's probably the best way I could describe this podcast. Especially like... These Lanyap episodes? Well... I don't know. I, I just think in general, like we've been doing less writing and more podcasting lately. And it, it really does feel like, okay, everybody, did you do the weekly reading? What did you think? <laughs> what about the themes? I mean, this is our form of socializing right now. Yeah. Exactly. Maybe once we can all talk to each other in person, we'll just go back to writing. Be like, we want to be alone now. Too many people now. I suspected it'd be the same, but with snacks. Uh, which is pretty much how it went last week when I saw Brittany and James in person. I love that you went back to recording in person with them and immediately com- came back with complaints about our mic etiquette. <laughs> <laughs> All three of us fucked up in like particular personalized ways last week. I had to like reset the table. Um, yeah, that's fair. But that's fair. I sometimes need like a little jab. And in person, um, I fucked up recording Britney's microphone last week and had to like boost the background audio to get her voice on the recording at all. So being in person did not fix any problems. It was just uh, nice to see and hug people again. Isn't it nice to hug? It was really nice to hug. <sighs> I haven't hugged someone that's not my family yet, even though so many of my friends are vaccinated. We just haven't. We haven't made that that leap yet. It's real weird. Yeah. We need to reintroduce each other. <laughs> Work up to it. Maybe the middle school pool party, like the first hug will really open the door for the rest of them. Yeah. Right. Well, does anybody want to recommend some movies to me this week? Do you have anything good? What have you been watching, Allie? I watched The Miracle of Morgan's Creek, which was actually pretty amazing. Uh, Preston Sturge's movie, which I had never seen anything that he had done before, but it was really great. Um, it's another one of those movies that's kind of like, wow, is this just a stress dream for an anxious person? <laughs> <laughs> but it also is just like a blatant, you know, trying to get around the haze code. You know, it's just like a blatant parading of the codes there. So we're just barely we're gonna we're gonna just bump up right against the code. Like the Thin Man movies? Yeah, even though bumping up against the code is against the code, right? (laughs) But it's really great. It's about this girl who has a suitor who's just like this regular ass like nerd guy. And she goes out on a wild party. And then she ends up pregnant. And basically... It just snowballs from there, and suddenly there's bank robbery. It gets real wild real fast, but it is one of the funniest movies I've seen in a while, actually. And that one is on the Criterion, of course. So that was that was my first watch of this past week. After that, I watched Mr. Arcaden by Orson Welles. I had never heard of it before, and a lot, like a lot of Orson Welles movies, I... I liked it, and I liked it, and then up till a certain point, and then I just didn't find the ending satisfying at all. And it kind of, in a lot of ways, was just your boilerplate noir. But Orson Welles is in it as this like really sinister character, and it's he's, of course, fantastic in that role. So it's kind of worth watching just for him being himself, a sinister dude. And then the next thing I watched... I switched gears 
and I decided, okay, now is the time I'm going to branch out into some Indonesian horror. So I watched The Queen of Black Magic. Hell yeah. Yeah, which I really, really enjoyed. Um, It kind of felt like almost like an early Jackie Chan movie in some ways, you know, minus... Oh, wait, did you watch the 80s one or did you watch the one that came out this year? I watched the 80s one. Oh, okay. I haven't seen that yet. Yeah, it feels very much like that sort of 70s era, like Hong Kong cinema, like where it's very colorful and kitschy and kind of, you know, meandering and a lot of like folklore and things. It was pretty great. It's definitely not what you would think of when you think like horror movie, but it has some really, really like wild gore, just super duper gory and disgusting, which is, I wasn't expecting that, um, but I appreciated it. I would definitely recommend watching the new one too. Um, Okay. I, I haven't seen the original, but the guy who wrote the new one, Joko Anwar, has been doing like really great modern Indonesian horror films. Uh, he did in Pedagore last year. Which I haven't seen, but I've only heard great things about, so. I think his, like, kind of calling card is he's remaking these movies from when he was young. So, like, he did one called Satan Slaves, and I guess Queen of Black Magic is part of that, too. But it's kind of, like, in concept only. Like, he'll take a few images from the original and just try to, like, replicate the feeling of watching them as a kid. Um, so all the things you just described of, like, how it's, like, doesn't quite feel like a normal horror film. And then there's just these like absolutely gruesome images that come through. Like that is what he's doing with the stuff. It's just more modern sensibilities. It's kind of like this, like post J horror ghost story um, set in an orphanage. I don't know. I thought it was great. Yeah. That sounds amazing. I'm in totally in to watch that. Uh, Yeah. So that about wraps up my week of watching, but they were all really great. I definitely recommend all three, at least, you know, definitely Miracles Morgan's Creek. And, you know, if you're feeling like a kitschy, you know, 80s Asian gory quote unquote horror, it was more like a fantasy sort of adventure drama, then Queen Black Magic is great. Mr. Arcaden, if you're in the mood for, you know, middle of the road noir um, that just happens to have <laughs> Orson Welles, I would just, I would watch that, but not in my, my top pick there. So what have you been watching, Boomer? Uh, well, I've I've seen a few things. Um, I think I went ahead and organized these, not in the chronological order that I saw them, but in uh, order of how much I um, grew to enjoy them, starting with things that I did not enjoy. I started watching My Octopus Teacher, uh, and I couldn't stand it, and so I flipped that off. Not the Oscar-winning documentary, <laughs> <Yes>. best documentary <laughs> film of 2020. It's funny because it actually does kind of go back to what I was complaining about with um, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, which is like the real need to anthropomorphize like beings that are completely unlike us, even the ones that live on our own planet. And Maggie Mae Fish did a really great video essay about my octopus teacher quite a while back at this point that I saw when she released it. And I think that uh, she says everything that I feel more eloquently than I could. So, um, I, I would recommend checking out Maggie Mae Fish's video essay about my <laughs> octopus teacher and, and not watching my octopus teacher at all. And then I also saw a 2020 horror film called Death of Me. It's not very good. Um, it's directed by Darren Lynn Boozman, 
who I guess was somehow involved with like the Saw franchise, directed Saws 2 through 4, I guess, in the recent release, Spiral from the Book of Saw, which is in theaters now, or maybe not, Oof. depending on when <laughs> you listen to this. Um, <laughs> Death of Me is about like a vacationing, honeymooning couple played by Maggie Q and um, Luke Hemsworth, you know, the other not Hemsworth. The Alpha Hemsworth, not the Beta Hemsworth, but I don't know, like the Gamma Hemsworth. Like no <laughs> offense, I mean he's on he's on Westworld, so you know, power to him. But uh, they are like a honeymooning couple, and he is like a, a travel photojournalist, and they go to a remote island that I guess is supposed to be in Thailand. Like they kind of skirt around it by never really making it explicit or naming the island, at least that I could tell. But everybody speaks Thai. And then on the morning they're supposed to leave, they wake up and are in sort of like a state of dishevelment. And they try to piece together what happened the night before. And all of that is is fine and good, I guess. But I got to be honest, I, <laughs> I did not care for this movie because it felt very... Uh, racist to me and I, I think that they tried to skirt around some of that by having Maggie Q as the lead if this had been a story that was set in like New England I think I would have liked it fine but you know a honeymooning couple is like turned into a sacrifice for the local gods is such a, a dated Eesh. storytelling technique and for the, the year of our lord 2020 for this film to have been released with you know I, I guess that there's a part of it which is that the sacrifice like prevents like the typhoons from hitting the island but there's a way to do that and just put it in like a you know just set it in new england you know have it be a nor'easter don't make it about non-white people that just makes it feel weird and, and creepy and, and dated and racist and if you put it in new england um people just call it lovecraftian automatically and then you'll get extra eyes on it uh in my things that i enjoyed but didn't love i saw we summon the darkness which brandon seems like something that would have been up your alley i think Brittany saw that one is that the metalhead movie yes any interest in interesting that? interested but i don't know I, I i never heard much enthusiasm for it to be honest i think that it exists in a space like what we talked about before where in previous episodes that sort of like examines uh, the relationship between culture and like evangelical Christianity, like saved and a couple of other things that we talked about. There's an element of that in this that elevates it a little more than just being like a sort of bargain basement slasher. I think it's shot very interestingly. I think that the characters are interesting. I liked Kean Johnson in it. I had previously seen, he was previously in Alita, Battle Angel, and I don't think I've ever seen him in anything else. But yeah, I saw that movie and he's in this. And he makes for an interesting and appealing sort of male lead. And I also saw something that I thought was really fascinating and I was shocked I had never even heard of it before. But apparently in the 90s, Kenneth Branagh made a Frankenstein movie. And it's called Mary Shelley's Frankenstein to be sort of like Bram Stoker's Dracula to also imply that this one is like truer to the text, which is true. Although now we have to refer to it as Kenneth Branagh's Mary Shelley's, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Frankenstein. <laughs> Branagh plays 
Frankenstein. He plays, you know, Dr. Frankenstein. He it is very true to the text, even going so far as to like recreate the framing device where Victor Frankenstein is discovered on an ice floe. Like that actually happens at the beginning of this movie, although it does change sort of like what the last events were that happened before he ran away. Uh, I was surprised by how good it was. I thought it was great, uh, especially for something that appears to have been not very well received in its time and mostly consigned to the dark depths of history. But it's pretty great. I would recommend it. Who plays the monster? Uh, De Niro. Okay, that sounds interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Kenneth Branagh and his like um, his teacher in Geneva is uh, John Cleese in a non-comedic role. Wow. So there were a lot of choices in a way that makes me say, you know, I understand why it was regarded as sort of an oddity in its time. Helena Bonham Carter is in it. She's in every British movie. Yeah, and especially anything that's remotely gothic, and this, this yes. is very much that. <laughs> she just uh, materialized out of thin air. <laughs> the things that I really enjoyed, I saw a short, very short 40-minute documentary that came out last year entitled Speed Cubers, or I guess The Speed Cubers, um, which is about these two uh, young men, Felix Zimdigs, who is... Uh, until recently the reigning champion of speed solvers of rubik's cubes i find it so odd that i immediately got what that was i was gonna say i immediately knew because i had friends in high school actually that were speed cubers which is a really nerdy thing to say did they call themselves that (laughs) no but now that i know there's a word for it i had one who lived on my hall in boarding school and he actually lost like the tip of his pinky finger in like an accident because like the uh, apparently the fire doors in the middle of the hallways in the, the boys' dorms at uh, my boarding school uh, recently found out that it's not the first person that that has happened to. Like pe- if you oh, run yeah. full oh. speed at the door, uh, w- which you know is what happens when you've got a bunch of like rowdy boys living away from home. If you're running at a door and it's like closing, and you try to reach out and open it. Those doors were big and heavy because they were fire doors. And he like lost part of his pinky and other kids have apparently lost other fingers over the years. So uh, he was a speed cuber. And I've often wondered um, how that affected his speed cubing ability. Like if he had, if he might have gone pro were it not for getting a little too rowdy one day, but that's, sorry, that's <laughs> a horrible, it's a horrible digression. Um, Felix Zimdix is Australian. He's in his early twenties. He has been like the record holder for the longest time. And he also was the hero when he was younger of a young American boy named Max Park, who was diagnosed with pretty severe autism when he was like two years old. And like his parents, you know, did various forms of therapy with him. And whenever he started like cubing and got really good at it, it like really helped him sort of come out of his shell. And like one of the things that his parents talk about in the documentary is the first time that he won an award and he was on like the dais, he mimicked one of his peers actions for like the first time. And so it's a really fascinating story about this guy who was once 
and still is in many ways the greatest speed cuber you know of all time and his relationship with this boy who had a hero worship for him and has now broken some of his records and you would think that you know in a in a story like this there would be some level of animosity but everyone is just so nice it's a very nice movie that Aww. i really enjoyed um that i recommend speed cubers I also saw Save Yourselves, which we were briefly talking about earlier on Mike, uh, off Mike, the Hulu horror comedy about a hipster Brooklyn couple played by Sunita Mani and John Paul Reynolds, previously discussed by us when we talked about Horse Girl, trying to sort of unplug for a week and going to the cabin of a, a friend of theirs who is um, the guy from High Maintenance. Uh, I didn't realize he was doing other stuff. Very brief voice cameo from Amy Sedaris, uh, which is delightful. Mm-hmm. But they go out to unplug from, you know, this technology-ridden life. And, of course, as soon as they get out there, um, the Earth is invaded by adorable but disgusting furball monsters. It escalates. It's a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. I give a, a big recommendation to recommendation to save yourselves. And if you already have Hulu, which you, you probably do, it's you know free for you. And then the last two things that I really want to give major recommendations to are a recent Irish film called Dating Amber. It was a 2020 release. It was like released on digital with a planned theatrical release that never came to fruition because of COVID. It's set in the early 90s, and it's about two queer teenagers, a guy and a girl, who basically agree to pretend to date each other until they're able to graduate and get away from like their kind of small closed-minded communities the actress who plays amber is named lola pettigrew and she doesn't really have a lot of other credits and her mother is played by uh simone kirby who listeners may know as mary in the recent His Dark Materials HBO adaptation. Fionn O'Shea plays Eddie, who is, you know, the sort of deuteragonist. They're they're sort of co-leads, where his father is a man who um, is very obsessed with demonstration of masculinity through involvement in the military. So he's away for long periods of time, and his mother is around and she's kind of falling out of love with him so there's like a background of like the parental issues because amber herself has um lost her father at an early age to suicide and so the two of them initially just pretend to date in order to avoid bullying from their peers and eventually strike up like a really strong beautiful friendship and uh she adjusts better than he does and you know he is like staring down the barrel of joining like the irish military just like his father as if he has no choice as if he's predestined and it's it's a really it's a really beautiful movie about just like coming of age and and the friendships that you make and and i don't know all of that sounds like i'm being really cheesy i'm sure it's hard to take seriously because i'm rarely so like openly sentimental but i really think that this one was a good one big recommendation for me dating amber 
And then the other one that I wanted to recommend is a film starring Rebecca Hall called Christine. Um, obviously not Stephen King's Christine, but have either of you heard of this one? I remember when that came out a few years ago, there was another movie about the same incident that came out at the same time. There were like competing movies about that like real life historical person. Yes. And um, I did not know about that. I did not know that that was where this was going. I don't want to spoil it. It's set in the 70s. It's about a woman. It, it kind of just has this sort of like, for me, as someone who didn't really have a knowledge of, of where the film was headed or what Christine Chubbuck's real life story was, Christine Chubbuck was a reporter in the 70s uh, in Sarasota, Florida, and she was sort of living in that change from legitimate factual fourth estate journalism to sort of if it bleeds it leads type journalism so i was immediately thinking about like nightcrawler although obviously i didn't think it was gonna um, become like nightcrawler in its story and it doesn't but i it kind of had that that sort of vibe except that uh our lead christine chubbuck played by rebecca hall and she does a great job i mean she is she is phenomenal in this uh over the credits, they show footage of the real Christine, or the, you know, Christine Chubbuck, the historical Christine Chubbuck, and the mannerisms and her affectation of them are, are, are truly astonishing. But she lives with her mother. There's a really strange sort of hippiness going on where she calls her mother by her first name, but they live together, and her, her mother kind of lives off of her, and she has a, um, a sort of crush on her coworker, George Peter Ryan, uh, played by Michael C. Hall, and she is having trouble keeping up with this like change in the nature of journalism um, that causes her that that happens to coincide with uh, medical issues and and other things that uh, lead her down a dark path. I, it is currently on Netflix. I had not heard of it. I, I did not know the story of Christine Chubbuck. If you do not know it, I don't want to give it away. But if you are a person who is sensitive to a lot of the standard triggering issues that commonly plague our psyches in the West, maybe check out the website Does the Dog Die to see if it's going to be something that might trigger you. But I do give it a recommendation. I'd be curious if you went back and watched the other one. Because what I remember was like both of them got positive reviews. <laughs> and I was like, well, I don't know if I want to commit to watching two movies <laughs> on the same subject. But I'd be curious if... Uh, I think the other one was called Kate Plays Christine. It was specifically about someone training to play that character. But it wasn't Rebecca Hall. Yes. Kate Plays so Christine was the other one. A, a friend who... <laughs> shockingly and thankfully did not tell me what was going to happen to Christine told me about that whenever I was like, Oh, you know, I just started watching this movie, Christine. I had to pause it halfway through, but I'm really enjoying it. Uh, my friend did not, uh, spoil that for me, but he was like, Oh, you know, there's another one called Kate plays Christine <laughs> that maybe you should check out after. I was like, all right. Yeah. I'd be curious uh, about how they compare. Um, I just never put in the time to watch them both. That that's all I've got. Thank you for listening, Brandon. What have you been watching? <laughs> all right, goodbye. Uh, <laughs> no, I wasn't. That's not what I was doing. <laughs> I have a couple like low budget indie movies that are going to sound so generic as I explain what they are, 
So I should just say up front that I enjoy both of these movies a lot and they're not as generic as they sound. And both of them can be watched for free through sort of convoluted ways. Uh, One of them is the new release or a new release from Altered Innocence, which is like one of my favorite current distributors. They, They did The Wild Boys and Knife and Heart and a bunch of other movies we've praised on the show. They have a documentary out this year called Madam. I had to sign up for this streaming platform called Deku that I've never heard of before. Like D-E-K-K-O-O, Deku. So that sounds like nothing, right? It's just kind of like a meaningless phrase. And then it looks like they only stream like specifically gay media. Like that is like their specialty. Madam is a documentary. It's kind of a self-portrait. And this is where it's going to sound really generic, where this guy is going through old movies and photographs from his life growing up in France in the um, 80s and 90s. And he's talking to his grandmother who has passed away. It's kind of like a letter to her posthumously. And he's talking about how hard it was to come out to her when he was a kid and like all the parts of himself that he had to keep to himself because he was in the closet um, while she was alive and like how much of a barrier that was between what used to be like a very fruitful, meaningful relationship to him. Like as he became like a sexual person, as he grew up, it was like harder to relate to her because she was so conservative and he had to like keep the fact that he was gay away from her. Where the movie gets less generic, I mean, first of all, it just looks really great. The editing of all this like 70s and 80s, like French countryside footage is fantastic. And he goes to like these like pride marches in the US at the height of the AIDS crisis. And it's just like incredible footage on both sides of that divide. But what's really great about the movie is that it kind of has like a philosophical point to it beyond just how hard it is to come out. Which I don't want to downplay that. It's just like so many gay movies are about that one aspect of gay life that like it gets kind of repetitive. Um, This one pushes a little further and he starts talking about how his grandmother and her time was ostracized for refusing to stay married to this husband that she didn't like. Uh, She just like wasn't attracted to the man she married. So she divorced him and started her own business and became kind of like the black sheep of the family for being a woman who wanted to be educated and be like self-sufficient and the film graduates from being just this like personal diary to being this like essay that links sexism and homophobia. He calls them like, he calls like homophobia, the ugly child of sexism. Um, So the movie has this like very strong point of view between linking those two things generationally and Expanding out from there to just like how so many relationships are blocked before they can like fully grow, like how they're all like obstructed by those two like major things hanging over us, Um, sexism and homophobia, especially like in these very rigidly gendered ways that people were raised 20, 30, 50 years ago. It's really good stuff. It's really well edited together and gorgeous to look at and um, ended up having a much more specific thing to say than what I expected at first. That one's called Madame or Madam. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm sure in, in, in French it sounds much lovelier. Madame. Out of my... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you for jumping in there. My uh, Shalmat, my Shalmat accent doesn't have quite the finesse that it needs. <laughs> uh, I also watched 
the first festival acquisition, from what I can tell, from the streaming service Tubi. Oh. <laughs> Beloved heavy hitters on Our this show, favorite. Tubi. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, we've talked a lot about how they've been this like sleeper streaming giant. Like they've kind of gradually become like a major player just for having tons and tons of interesting things streaming on there where it used to just be like, you know, throwaway horror sequels and like public domain garbage at first. <laughs> like Tubi is like actually pretty substantial now. And part of that is they acquired this movie from Sundance and like premiered it. Uh, so this is the movie called beast beast. It is in broad terms, a teen melodrama about gun violence. Uh, it's very Gen Z. It's kind of put together as in the same kind of like youthful style as I would say, like a episode of euphoria or something like that. Lots and lots of social media footage montage together in this like hyperconnect style. that's very multimedia, the kind of shit I live for, honestly, like, it was really hitting a lot of buttons for me visually where I feel like a lot of people would be rolling their eyes. I just love the <laughs> use of like disposable internet footage in this. It's about these three high school kids who live near each other. They go they go to the same school and they all have their own private interests outside of school. Like one is a actor, um, you know, like a theater kid. Uh, one is really into like skateboarding and makes like skateboarding videos. And the third one is this creepy white kid who loves to shoot guns in the woods and make YouTube videos about gun safety. And the way the movie's presented, all three of those things are these like cute hobbies that they have <laughs> where they're all like montaged together, all this like sub professional content that these children are producing for the internet. And it, it kind of feels like when you're scrolling the internet and you see like atrocities on the news mixed in with like cute puppy videos. It's like the death of context. So like <laughs> this kid, this creepy white kid, like firing guns being mixed in with these other two kids, like producing art. Um, they're kind of like all leveled out. It's all just leveled out to like content, except because this is a drama that's all inevitably leading to there actually being, you know, gun violence it doesn't happen in the context or the location you would expect, but it is inevitable that someone is shot and killed in the film. Mm -hmm. And then there's 15 more minutes after that where it unravels in a way I really did not expect. It goes into kind of pulpy territory, but it's all very internet focused and weaponizing the court of public opinion to get revenge on that gun violence, it's fucking wild. And the whole movie's very tense. Like, I, I was really gripped by it. Hmm. What's really interesting, though, is that Tubi is, like, the worst platform for it. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of hate saying that. Because, uh, you know, no one else picked them up. I, I doubt Tubi was, like, their first choice. But, like, it's a movie with, like, crazy amounts of tension-building drums. Because uh, the skateboarding kid also does, like, drum practice. And just like arrhythmic music and rapid fire montage. So it it's exponentially tense. Like it just keeps getting more and more tense until the inevitable violence happens. And then every now and then you get iced down and like taken out of it because it cuts to like a commercial break. Like there's like a Verizon <laughs> or Charmin commercial <laughs> in the middle of these like tense scenes. And it's like, God, I wish I could have seen this like at a film festival instead of on this like streaming app that's specifically built around commercial breaks 
So I don't know. I like I'm glad that they're reaching out and like distributing these like little indie movies that would have not seen the light of day otherwise. Like a lot of these movies just kind of die at festivals, even good ones. Right. Um, but also it kind of sucks that you can't experience those movies without them being interrupted. Weird platform, man. I still haven't wrapped my mind around Tubi as a concept, and this does not make it any easier. Journey into the depths of Full Moon's private dungeon. Anybody there? As Stuart Gordon, the director of such horror classics as Reanimator and From Beyond, unchains his most terrifying creation and lets it loose on you, Castle Freak. So for this week, I made everybody watch Castle Freak, uh, which was originally recommended to me by a friend. And I don't really know what to think, um, which is part of why I watch movies with people is like, what did you think about it? I need to know what I think about it. Uh, (laughs) But it is about this family who inherits this castle. And within the castle, there is a freak. But really, he is the patriarch of the family's like estranged brother who has been tortured and mutilated and confined by his mother as revenge on the grandfather. So when I first watched this movie, there were a couple things that really, really struck me about it. And one of them is it looks like it was filmed like it's like a made-for-TV movie. And it catches you off guard because of that with its just gratuitous violence like it is extremely violent and graphic and kind of gross so i don't know if that was kind of like jarring for y'all yes but i think that's exactly what i like about full moon movies in particular is they kind of feel like safe made for children movies and then they are all very like explicitly hard r like gruesome gore fests (laughs) (laughs) like there's a real weird tonal problem not least of all because uh, Charles Band always employs his brother Richard Band to do the music in his movies, and they all sound so dinky and like children's music, like and these little like Casio tone preset keyboard noises, right. and then you're watching like some mutilated castle freak uh, <laughs> torment people, and like the dissonance between what you're hearing and what you're seeing is like jarring to say the least like it's always a weird mix of like tone and visuals with him this one was shocking i was surprised by how brutal it was because you know at least when i think about full moon i think about like doll man and like bad channels and like you know maybe a bloodstone or two I don't generally think about like a sex worker having their like, you know, having their nipple bitten off by a monster. It was a little too real. And apparently this one was actually like not made for like direct to video, but like this one was unrated for some reason, I think. I think they were all made direct to video, right? Right. But there was something specific about the production about this one that was strange and made it even cheaper than normal 
And I think that it was the right decision. If it's like, well, if we're going to make a full moon feature and it's going to be cheaper than normal, you gotta, you gotta pull out the big guns, which is Jeffrey Combs. (laughs) He is going for it in this movie. Yeah, definitely. They seemingly poured all of the money in the makeup for the castle freak. Uh, Cause I think Charles band owned the castle where they shot the movie. What? Yes. He would just, he bought a castle and filmed like a bunch of movies there as like a money saving ploy you know save money buy a castle oh my god (laughs) and full moon was like going out of business around this time they were like hitting dire straits so uh maybe that wasn't the best decision but i think Stuart gordon had even made a movie in that castle for him before this like this wasn't their first collaboration there but you wouldn't guess any of that if you just looked at the prosthetics for the freak which are head to toe like every inch of his body is covered with really gruesome practical makeup design um, it, it's very difficult to look at. He's an un- uncomfortable figure. Yeah, he kind of reminded me of sort of the villainous monster deformed figure of the Funhouse, but oh, yeah. like oh. even more uncomfortable. I think. I was expecting there to be like a little bit of a Beauty and the Beast story almost happening. Of course, this was long before we found out about like the familial relation between Jeffrey Combs' blind teenage daughter and Jeffrey Combs half brother but i was like oh it's, it'll be like a I, I guess there was a part of me that was thinking not about full moon but about like their um child imprint and i was like oh maybe this will be like a beautiful story of friendship between this castle freak and becky and that was not what happened at all no. i was honestly a little bit surprised that this was your pick Allie. it seemed a little bit more violent and gruesome and especially like more so than what I normally expect you to enjoy. I know, and I was wondering I if there was anything in particular about this one that drew you to it. Yeah, it was really, uh, it came heavily recommended by a friend of mine. And like I said, sometimes I watch these movies and I'm like, I need to watch this with somebody else. I need to talk <laughs> this out. Uh, Castle Freak is one of those, you know, just complicated Castle Freak feelings. I mean, I feel like Stuart Garden. You know, the reanimator is really great. Uh, I love the reanimator series. But I also feel like this movie doesn't have that same fun to it. It's so dark and, you know, it has yeah. the whole family trauma aspect of it. I feel like it's ahead of its time as far as horror is concerned because I think now, if you were to look at horror movies everywhere, it's just. Family trauma, family trauma, you know? So it was really interesting to see that deep a theme coming from something, once again, that looked like it was shot on a home video camera, (laughs) to be frank. Yeah, I don't know what aspect ratio this is in on Tubi, because my friend actually owned like a digital copy of this that's in its like 4.3 full screen version. That's what's streaming on Shutter and Tubi as well as the mm-hmm. uh, the boxed in like cathode ray TV aspect ratio, yeah. which makes sense because it is a full moon feature. Like, there's no reason that they would shoot something in like nine sixteen for what they know is the home video release market of the eighties and nineties. But it did give it a real, a real cheap feel to it even even in like the digital release which is which is cleaned up it still sort of looked like a vhs transfer i think that's what kind of makes the monster of this movie pop like 
honestly, I think this is like a C minus movie with an A plus creature in it. Yes. Um, I don't know. I don't know how to do the math of that grade, but like uh, the anytime the creature is on the screen, I am cringing in every cell of my body. I feel so bad for the poor little mutant that's been whipped every day of his life and had his genitals mutilated and oh, I know. doesn't know how to like reach out and touch people without assaulting them, uh, which he does repeatedly in the film. It's really hard to watch. And I guess there's some sort of like parallel metaphor there where like Jeffrey Combs, who is like his direct relative, they're kind of like parallel comparing his grotesque behavior as like an alcoholic. Yeah. They're mirrors of each other. Yeah, and even by the time the movie ends tragically, they're, like, posed next to each other, so you, like, really punctuate that comparison. Yeah. But I don't know that the movie does anything interesting, really, outside of what the freak looks like. (laughs) As hard as Jeffrey Combs is trying to make a meal out of this dialogue, um, and Barbara Crampton's, you know, ably screaming her head off, I, I just don't see much going on here to justify all of the sexual assaults that's you know teased out not really shown at length on camera but there's a lot of grotesque like aftermath of it and sound effects and sound effects yeah yeah uh, but particularly one like cunnilingus gore gag oh that uh, really sits heavy on the stomach which is okay that part is like really weird like the castle freak is watching his bastard brother is that a good yeah Yeah. lineage so he's watching his bastard brother take this prostitute home to the castle um and they're gonna have sex in the wine cellar and combs goes down on the sex worker which is like not a dynamic you usually see in a movie like this especially not with a prostitute yeah he was concerned for her pleasure at least at first i found that really like surprising and like kind of charming and then immediately the castle freak makes that gross by replicating it um and literally eating her out um and it is so grotesque (laughs) and like goes so far beyond what you think is allowed in these kinds of movies and i don't know that there's any real point to it but i can say that it did horrify me i was definitely like my skin was crawling off my body and trying to run away as I was watching anything he did. Um, so mission accomplished there. Kat asked me if I was going to bring this up during our discussion of it because I wouldn't stop talking about it while we were watching it. But, you know, he's there to liquidate the castle and all of its assets. But wouldn't y'all would save like a rug or two, right? Like those were some really nice rugs. <laughs> <laughs> Every time there yeah. was a rug in the shot, I was like, like that one. I'd keep that one. Or like, oh, no, not that rug, though. I was pretty fond of all the cherub with skull paintings. Yeah, they're um, weird, right? I would have I would have kept some of those, I think. I don't think I would have kept any of this furniture. It all looks very uncomfortable. I think I would seal up the walls to make sure that there wasn't someone living in them. Um, oh, I would be my not, first move. I would not live in this <laughs> castle. Not at all. I mean, you got to liquidate yeah. that. You got to you got to take that and buy yourself a nice little two bedroom condo and never work again back in the states. That's what you do. It looks very drafty. Oh my god! Wait, does this mean that that's <laughs> is that Charles Band's real furniture? That's a good question. Is oh. this like a because oh. you know in all of yeah. those David Dakota movies that he shoots in his house, that is his real furniture. 
Like, even if it's something like, you know, D.B. Cooper versus Bigfoot, where it's, like, supposed to be a period piece, he still has that horrible, like, back half of a Volkswagen love seat. I remember in a talking cat, he directly comments on it immediately. He's like, look at this crazy car I own, and, like, hops in it and honks the horn. Yeah. I doubt this is, like, prop furniture. It looks like stuff that came with the castle. I was going to say, I think the castle came furnished. Yeah. When when Charles Band bought it, complete with the castle freak. Yeah, complete with freak, actually. <laughs> uh, Charles Band is the castle freak in that castle, though. Oh, for sure. That That is kind of a fun flip of a trope we've talked about in the show before is like there is a wide range of horror films where the big twist is that someone's been living in the walls all along and that's what's going on. Um, there's like no ghosts or evil dolls um, moving themselves around. It's just a freak in the walls. And in this case, they tell you that immediately. It's on the poster. <laughs> it's, it's introduced the, title. the first scene before the family arrives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's coming. Yeah. The castle, the castle freak gets like uh, airtime before we even learn the title or meet our mains. I'm going to be honest. I enjoyed this a lot. But I don't know why. Every element seems kind of horrifying. It's all in bad taste. Every single bit of it. But enjoyable somehow. And that is is exactly why I'm like recommending this to y'all. And why we're talking about it is because I really need to figure out like, is it the scene where the freak jumps from the window? Because watching it again, just like my that moment, I was like, oh, my God, what? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he just got stabbed and he's jumping through the window uh you know it, i think it's moments like that where it's just so ridiculous and all the the freak screams and the monster sounds oh perfect is that how this yeah. guy got cast <laughs> oh my god and it and the cast really is just like it's just jeffrey combs barbara crampton uh, Jonathan Fuller and introducing Jessica Dollarhide and then everything else is just a bunch of Italians. It's just like <laughs> and it's funny because you, you would kind of think in a horror movie like this you know uh, not just the you know stay at the haunted house horror movie but like the kind of stranger in a strange land movie that's horror based you'd think that they're uh, there's usually like a scene where your lead doesn't understand what's going on for some reason due to like a translation problem or like they become disoriented because they don't hear any language that they can speak or understand. That doesn't happen at all. Jeffrey Combs gets along just fine without learning a single word (laughs) of Italian. He's just like, yeah, I understand prostitute money. Yeah. Got it. Here you go. Other than the scene where he's in the uh, police station and the, the one cop who can speak English isn't around, he never really seems to have much trouble fitting in or getting along or getting what he needs. He's great. Barbara Crampton is great in this, too. Uh, it feels like she's barely in it, to be honest, but she's she's going for it. Here's where I kind of have to confess that I'm a bad horror fan, where I don't really care about either of those people, oh. even though they're like horror greats. Like the most I feel when I see Jeffrey Combs is like, thank God it's not Bruce Campbell. That's like the most I get out of seeing him. I, I just feel like I'm the wrong kind of horror nerd where I'm like, ooh, Charles Band's like idiot brother doing dinky Casio tone score over this like horrific creature. That's the good stuff. I think that Combs and Crampton are fine. 
I don't know what it is. I'm missing some kind of like horror nerd gene there. I mean, I I, I understand it uh, in general. I, you know, I definitely feel like Barb and uh, Jeff, since we're so familiar, have yeah. <laughs> turned in performances that are pretty low key before. I feel like they're really going for it in this one when yeah. he's just like, "Damn it, Barbara! I haven't dropped, I haven't touched a drop of the stuff in nine months." Okay, how long has it been since their son died? Nine months. Okay, but also he mentioned something that happened <laughs> two years before. Okay, so maybe his son died and then he still drank. Right, and then he hasn't drank in nine months, maybe. Or is it that the son died nine months ago and two years ago something else happened? Because it is also mentioned that he is jobless and he was, and I have a lot of questions about this. Oh, yeah. That he was fired for (laughs) politically incorrect. Incorrectness, yes. Yeah. Um, (laughs) What does that mean? I feel like there's a story that we're not, there's, the lead is really buried on this. Like, what did he do? What did he say? I want to know more about that little detail that he was fired for not being politically correct. How sympathetic do you think he's supposed to be if we're like paralleling him with the castle freak? I think that we should scorn him and then forgive him. (laughs) Yeah, I think that is the thing. I think we're supposed to see his jumping off to save his daughter and his estranged wife as like atonement. But right. Does he ever get there? Is that just for the car crash or is that for his politically incorrect behavior that we haven't really seen? And his drinking. So here's, here's yeah, the thing. Yeah, it's his drinking. Structurally, and I know that this is going to be a heresy, structurally, this is not terribly unlike The Shining, right? Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking. He's like, you know, he was a professor like jack was and then he got fired for what he identifies as you know oh i was being politically incorrect which is very similar to jack in the novel he doesn't really accept responsibility for the fact that his drinking is what Uh is costing him everything and then you know he has a period of sobriety they go to an isolated place him and his wife and their child and there is something that is there that the child immediately recognizes the father hears and then denies and then ultimately the only way that he is able to save his family is by sacrificing himself to the dark mirror version of himself i buy it like the shining there were parts where i had inappropriate laughter Mostly during the car crash that maimed his children <laughs> when yes. his daughter goes, Daddy! <laughs> As the car crashes. Uh, the way she screams Daddy in this one's very funny. And the fact that that child was supposedly thrown through the car from the car while it was idling forward. I was going to say, I think the thing is how slow motion the car crash was. <laughs> but not intentionally. Yeah. It wasn't like they overcranked it. They just like shot it while the car went two or three miles an hour forward, <laughs> like barely up an embankment. And Combs is doing some like vaudevillian, like broad <laughs> humor in those drunk scenes. He's like, "How you doing back there, JJ?" <laughs> Talking to this little kid, like he's really hamming it up, which is fun to watch. But definitely, like, I, it's hard. It's a little hard to take the melodrama as seriously in those scenes, whereas the Castle Freak you have to take seriously. <laughs> 
I think the thing about Jeffrey Combs is that he is the person you hire when you want it hammed up. I think that's the the horror nerdery about it that I get. Besides the fact that, I mean, Boomer knows that his performance on Beat Space Nine was just fantastic, so... All of his performances at so many different characters. I know. Oh, so good. And he and Stuart Gordon have like a history too, right? Uh, from Beyond, is that as well? Yeah, he's and Reanimator. He's from the Reanimator. And this is also low key Gordon doing another H.P. Lovecraft story. Basically, um, Charles Band pitched this to him as a poster. He's like, right. as long as this movie has a castle and a freak in it, you can do whatever you want with it. And he like grafted it onto a Lovecraft story, which is very much in line with those previous Combs collaborations as well. Yeah. It's not what you would normally consider to be a Lovecraftian story. It's more, um, uh, that one has like a twist ending, but there's nothing like, there's no greater mythos to it, but it is one of his best. I There's so much that just doesn't, I shouldn't enjoy about this, but I am so glad you brought this to us. <laughs> I feel like I brought it to the right place. <laughs> yeah, I brought it to the right place, the right people. For sure. I mean, I don't think it has to do much more than deliver a great monster and a few like campy exchanges to excel as well as it does, just because I will never forget the titular castle freak. I mean, I think so many horror movies, you know, even Jaws, like... The monster isn't isn't anything. I mean, obviously, Jaws like much better movie in a lot of ways, but and because you don't see the cheesy shark, but you know what I'm saying. Like, so many movies promise this monster and then don't deliver. So for it to be like it's a castle freak, <laughs> and you see every inch of his body, um, yeah. for extended periods of time, and it never gets easier to look at. <laughs> no he has like so many things exposed like his mouth is ripped away so there's like teeth that are like always out his like spine is like protruding from his body and his genitals are bare um and barely left like they've been mutilated to the point of like unrecognizableness and you see his whole butt crack as this like pasty ass is crawling around outside it's it's a lot of like 360 studies of the Castle Freak's whole situation. Um, it really is like so hard to look at. It really creeped me out, honestly. Uh, made me squeamish, which is a great thing to be able to do after watching so many horror movies over and over again. A rare quality. Huh, I don't know how I feel anymore. <laughs> I'm sorry. Did I ruin it? <laughs> no, I, I, I'm, I jape. It's weird because there are a lot of shots in this that are actually framed really well. It's just that the like just, they literally they actually look like they shot it on like a shoulder mounted <laughs> direct to VHS <laughs> air cooled home camera, right? I wonder what like a cleaned up Blu-ray quality copy would look like because I'm sure there is one out there. There's one for every horror curio in the world by now. Yeah, would it look any better? Is this the way it's meant to be seen on this like VHS quality? Yeah, I think I think you're supposed to see it in the most capacity that a castle freak could acquire. <laughs> What's the technology the castle freak could work with in his space? You have to like go down to his level. I mean, it it does evoke that quality of like staying up past your bedtime to watch something forbidden. Yeah. 
it still feels fucked up and forbidden, <laughs> even as an adult. Normally, in like a, a full moon picture like this, the grew is tasteless and the nudity is tasteless but like the grew is tasteless in like a fascinating horrifying way and the nudity is tasteless in like a cheesecake harmless you know no look at my tits kind of way and this movie <laughs> pairs them in a way that's deeply discomforting uh yeah. <laughs> when you're kind of just like oh i'm gonna watch a full moon movie it's like you know the difference between thinking that you're sitting down to watch like an episode of in the dark or uh, into the dark and then finding out that you're watching like i don't know hostile 2 you know like oh <laughs> I, I wasn't expecting this to happen i'll also say that um gordon working with charles band is probably my favorite mode that he's ever in um i, I think band produced reanimator and it also has that dinky um richard band score in that and uh my favorite Stuart gordon movie is dolls which is really him working on charles band's level because it's about these like animated dolls that kill people in an old dark house which is like pure full moon bullshit i think they pair well together i, I think it's a good pairing they bring out the best in each other what do you think the genealogy is between like dolls and demonic toys <laughs> Oh man, I have no idea what his whole like puppet doll toy obsession is. That that whole stop motion aesthetic was it just because those were the tools he had to work with? Maybe. Or does he have some kind of like actual personal obsession with the stuff? Even in this film, there's a scene where she's blindly walking around, and there's like an old fashioned like Victorian puppet hanging from the ceiling that she bumps into I'm yeah like, there's, there's my man band coming through with the dolls again <laughs> and it's it's not just band Stuart gordon wrote honey i shrunk the kids oh that's true which also has that sort of like uh, the thing that i really love which is just like little people borrowers uh we talked about any in the cover covered honey i shrunk the kids ant-man i just love anything with tiny people i think it's just the neatest thing and I think maybe that's what <laughs> it's not. It's not a fetish. I know that saying it's not a fetish doesn't really <laughs> prove anything. It's not. It's not sexual. I think it's cute. It's like my favorite kind of story. It's like Marge and the Potato. Yeah, I, just I was going to say. I just yeah. think it's neat. Well, I, I guess if we're uh, if we're gonna do a, a teaser for our next episode, uh, it is a film that stars Robert Beltran. And uh, instead of dragging it out, I'll just tell you it's eating Raul and it's great. It's uh, And so we'll be talking about that next time. Um, that is in two weeks. And next week on the show, we're going to talk about another cheapo horror film with an even smaller budget than this one. Um, <laughs> believe it or not, filmed in Michigan called The Demon Lover. I'm making Brittany watch it because I discovered that there's a behind the scenes documentary about it called Demon Lover Diary. That blew my mind. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> and it, The Demon Lover is directed by Donald G. Jackson, who went on to direct a bunch of straight-to-VHS weirdo horror films like Charles Band. Um, most notably, he made well, Hell Comes to Frogtown with oh, Roddy, Roddy Piper. Yeah. This is his first movie, and he was just dicking around in Michigan, and his ego is off the charts <laughs> and the behind the scenes documentary about him um, making the most important movie ever. The demon lover um, oh my God. is wild stuff. Uh, and I'm excited to talk about it next week. And then we'll come back with eating Raul after that.
Lots of great trash. This is like really hitting my pleasure zone right now, honestly. Uh, <laughs> thank you all <laughs> for taking me on the trash tour. Yeah, I really enjoyed taking our detour into um, children's films, but yeah, it was a nice, it was a nice detour. But watching this felt right, though. <laughs> this might have been us overcorrecting and flipping the car a little bit, but uh <laughs> but at least at least we were. <laughs> At least we were only going four miles an hour. (laughs) Yeah, it's safe. We're fine. (laughs) Bye, everybody. Bye. Some people think you have a problem, but that problem lies only with.